Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I am your host, Paul Hodes, here on WKXL AM and FM, soon to be broadcasted 101.9 in Manchester. And we are brought to you today by the Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, New Hampshire at ccanh.com. Check out the website. Visit the two great venues for great shows uh, coming up. And we're also podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to this by podcast, please subscribe, like us, tell your friends about us and share on social media. I'm really pleased to welcome back to Capital Close Up, Kevin Landrigan, New Hampshire's preeminent political reporter at theunionleader.com. Kevin has been covering political events in New Hampshire for a while, a long time. He's an award-winning journalist who really has his finger on the pulse of what's happening in New Hampshire. Kevin, really pleased to welcome you back to Capital Close-Up. Great to be back, Paul. So let's start out with some of the uh, recent disruptive uh, things that have happened in the state. It's always fun to talk about disruptions um, because that makes good news. And it's kind of fun in our eccentric state, which at least as far as I can tell, to my observation, is becoming more and more eccentric, kind of <laughs> tracking some of what's going on in the country. The first thing I'd like to talk about is uh, the Ken Weiler uh, resignation. Uh, State Representative Ken Weiler recently uh, was forced to resign by public outcry and presumably by political maneuvering uh, from his positions of power in our state house. What was that about? What happened? Yeah, that was, um, we've had an, a number of controversies about COVID-19 and many, um, some by legislative, some by not, but this was uh, certainly the more, most bizarre one we've had so far. Um, <laughs> Ken, Ken, Ken Wilder's a 17 term Republican from Kingston. Um, not just a long time legislator, but a long time budget writer in the legislature. He, he chairs the, he chaired the finance committee as well as the fiscal committee, which is, that's the house Senate committee of 10 legislators that meets every month throughout the year to make adjustments to the state budget. So it's very significant. And um, Representative Weiler kind of proved himself early on during this pandemic as someone who was very skeptical of the healthcare establishment and their view about this pandemic. And so when this was really brought to a head on September 15th, when um, the Department of Health and Human Services brought to the fiscal committee two contracts dealing with the acceptance of federal immunization money. And at that point, he um, kind of queried the commissioner, Lori Shibonet, and offered his views about what he had been hearing with regard to COVID-19, including that in his understanding, 90% of the people in the hospital with COVID had already been vaccinated, when in fact, the the reverse is true, right? In other words, 90% right. of those in the hospital right now, it's actually over 95% right now, 
who have COVID and are in the hospital are not vaccinated. Um, so um, those two contracts were tabled by uh, the fiscal committee on the 15th. That came two days after the executive council essentially had done the same thing to those two contracts. Um, both groups, of course, led by Republicans, which are now in the majority in all levels of power. So at that point, um, Chairman Weiler had wanted more information from health and human services. So he shared with all members of the fiscal committee these documents that um, were laden in conspiracy theory about COVID-19, including that um, there was a papal conspiracy with regard to COVID that um, both in the Vatican and London, high officials in the Catholic church were spreading these falsehoods about COVID-19 and the risks and dangers from COVID-19. Um, the Speaker of the House, after the 15th and the outburst he had, had spoken with Wyatt and told him to um, tone it down, essentially. And uh, as I alluded to, and rather than tone it down, he amped it up. And, and these emails um, led to this, uh, even after the 15th, the Democratic Party had started a petition to try and remove him. Over 500 people had signed the petition. Then these emails came out and the whole story went national and very viral. And at that point, um, he was under enormous pressure to step down. Uh, Governor Sununu said, publicly called for his resignation last week, but had subsequently told us that he had spoken to the speaker even before those latest emails about getting Packard to leave his position. Um, uh, ultimately, he did resign last week, um, both positions. Uh, many in the Democratic Party still want him to resign from the House. That, At least right now, that doesn't look likely to happen, but it's still possible. Um, uh, Ken Weibel will uh, turn 80 later this month, um, about a little over a year and a half ago, before the, just before the pandemic, he suffered a stroke and was very seriously ill. Um, and many who were very fond of Ken Weiler, even before this whole controversy and continue to be, feel um, that that stroke had an impact on him cognitively. And, and that may speak to why um, he's kind of, at least um, intellectually been spinning out of control of late, who knows? But at any rate, um, as I said, he's very popular person in the legislature. He's very conservative fiscally and socially, but very well liked by legislators in both parties. So people were very concerned about him anyway when this all came up because right. um, Ken Wiley had always been one of these people who wasn't shy about sharing controversial information. He's always done that. That's uh, how he's wired. But this kind of went beyond the pale, obviously. And, and so now um, the speaker is kind of promoted from within. Karen Umberger, who was the vice chairman of the committee on finance, is now the chairman of both these committees. And they'll hopefully move on. But meanwhile, I mean, the... The immunization contracts still remain this big uh, simmering controversy. On Wednesday, the executive council will meet 
and it will be the first meeting they're having since as we, we can talk about the last council meeting I had was abruptly canceled because of protests right. about right, right. these very contracts. Well, and, and in fact, in fact, that was uh, certainly on my mind. But before sure. we before we move to the executive council, uh, I'm just curious. So, you know, New Hampshire has a large proportion of senior citizens serving in its legislature we do. because we we pay one hundred dollars a year in salary Correct. plus yeah. mileage. So yeah. it's generally attractive to people who are retired or who have the means and don't need don't need a living. In in a sense, it's a it's a volunteer legislature. And as you point out, uh, Representative Weiler is a long, long serving uh, representative of 17 terms. That's 34 years uh, in in the legislature. He's now uh, 80. I'm I'm curious to know whether he uh, expressed any remorse or concern uh, or awareness of what um, what he had circulated and what he was uh, uh, proposing. Yeah, not not really. I mean, he. Um, in, in the case of this manifesto that he put out, which had all these objectionable um, and really controversial points of view, he said uh, he had only read the first 10 pages of the document, which were um, very anti-vaccine and very anti-CDC, but didn't go to all these lengths. And uh, he apologized for having done that and not properly vetted this document before he sent it all out and simply felt his resignation would end what he called the circus, in quotes, um, that had um, revolved around um, what he had done. Uh, but um, uh, so that's that's sort of where he came down um, yeah. and, and continues to be very skeptical about um, not so much that this is a serious illness, but rather about the government's um, um, continued emphasis on vaccination being the only way out of this. Right, and, and certainly, you know. and certainly, the governor um, has been at least uh, vocally a proponent of vaccination sure. as the way to control COVID as opposed to reinstituting any mask mandates with, with the advent of the Delta variant. Um, and, you know, I mean, it certainly seems like New Hampshire is tracking with the rest of the country and the rest of the world in uh, confrontations, protests, and disruptions over how to deal with COVID. Um, uh, opponents of mandates for vaccinations or masks um, seem to be a very vocal minority. Many businesses are and municipalities and state entities and government entities and the federal government are requiring uh, vaccinations. Um, this has uh, caused, of course, massive uh, loud protest from people who are claiming that this is a slippery slope of government intervention and telling you what to do with your body. And the, the, the bumper stickers are my body, my choice. Of course, 
um, there are many who say, wait a second, your um, a large uh, proportion of folks seem to be uh, on the Republican side of the political ledger who are objecting to these mandates claiming my body, my choice. But when it comes to um, uh, abortion services for women uh, who um, I make no bones about it, ought to have uh, the choice uh, about what to do with their bodies, they, uh, the male patriarchy seems to uh, want to control women. So the hypocrisy aside about all this, it puts society in a very difficult uh, place. It puts New Hampshire in a very challenging place in terms of the high emotional content and the resulting disruptions in process, including, as you alluded to, there was a a, a protest, a disruptive protest at the executive council meeting, the last executive council meeting, which was held at St. Anselm's College, a group of people uh, came into that public executive council meeting and disrupted uh, the meeting. What happened and, and why wasn't it shut down? Where were the police and where was the governor? Yeah, it was, that was a really strange um, episode of this whole controversy. You have to back up actually a couple of weeks before that meeting to understand really what went on, which is to say the Speaker of the House, Sherman Packard, had a rally outside the State House, which was called ostensibly to oppose the Biden vaccine mandate and make clear that this leadership in the legislature, Republican leadership, is going to fight this vaccine mandate. Well, a couple of hundred anti-vaccine mandate protesters showed up to picket the Republican legislative leadership and vocally shout him down at this press conference. It was, and their, their protesting was so loud, the speaker ended it after about 10 or 15 minutes. And the, the protesters then proceeded to hold their own press conference, basically hijacked the mic for the next hour and a half. And so fast forward a couple of weeks later, the executive council meets for for the next time at the Institute of Politics on the campus St. Anselm College. So it shouldn't have been any great shock to this governing executive council (laughs) since they were going to be voting on these contracts that there may be some anti-vaccine mandate protests there. And sure enough, they were numbering in a couple of hundreds. In fact, the crowd was so large, the fire marshal came and closed the meeting and stopped allowing people in, including members of the press, allowing the amendment because the place had gotten so overrun. And and at one point there were a couple of hundred protesters outside the venue who couldn't get in. At any rate, this was the meeting, as you know, but listeners may not, the executive council first has a breakfast meeting um, where they essentially just talk about the agenda that that's on tap and also it's an opportunity for state agency heads to give presentations and things like that to the council give them background briefings and that sort so that's how this started and um, the protests were so loud uh, and vocal by a minority of these folks only about eight to ten were those who were making all the noise the rest of the protests were just sitting there waiting for them to vote on these contracts that uh 
The counselors after the breakfast meeting went behind closed doors. By this time, there's a large law enforcement contingent there. There's state police, there's campus police, there were county sheriffs, there were local police officers at this session. And these loud protesters, um, it's important to point out, uh, they're experienced in what they do. They, so they're, um, they not only are very well organized, they also are tactically very savvy about what they can and can't get away with, right? So, which is to say, as they understand that as long as nobody lays their hands on anybody, they're more likely not to be physically removed from the meeting. And so they didn't. And, and so they weren't. And, and after um, these loud protests, the counselors finally came out from behind closed doors and Dave Wheeler, um, who's very much very anti-vaccine uh, mandate and, and not very pro-immunization when it comes to required immunization, announced that um, some state agency employees had already left fearing for their safety and therefore we're going to cancel the whole meeting. So they did. And, and for the last couple of weeks, this governor has been trying to figure out the best place to meet next in order to do business. And so they've chosen this Wednesday to go to the Police Standards and Training Council Auditorium in Concord, which as, as the name implies, is gonna be a pretty secure and safe venue, right? Since it's gonna be crawling with cops of all natures there. So, um, so a and, it's a big, of, and it's a big enough yeah. place to actually accommodate a couple of hundred protesters if they do show up. So a, a lot of people ask why, if these people were, were disturbing the peace and if they were putting uh, people in fear for their safety, um, those are criteria that certainly a lot of people think could support criminal charges. Right. Um, and a lot of people wondered, well, why weren't arrests made? And where was the governor in all this? Why did David Wheeler come out to announce uh, that the executive council meeting was going to be canceled? And 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 what are the implications for the conduct of state business if protesters are allowed or able to shut down public proceedings by loud, disruptive protests, uh, given that New Hampshire is a place where uh, we care about our transparency in government, that we want uh, our government to be open to the public, uh, that we care about uh, making sure that the public has access um, to our large legislature and our executive council, thus the whole reason for these public executive council uh, roadshow roadshow hearings, um, it seems to me that we're facing uh, a deeper uh, question about enforcement, about how to, how to act in a democracy so that democracy can work. I mean, this isn't brand new. I remember in 2010 with healthcare, right. Uh, right. Same, same kind of thing. Where was the governor? <laughs> Why did David Wheeler come out, not the governor? And uh, what about the police standing by? Inquiring minds have asked. It seems that 
uh, when when protest gets so disruptive as to cause people to fear for their safety uh, and disturb the peace, it would seem that there could be the basis for police action, but the police just stood by. Has anybody talked about it? Has anybody uh, in power talked about the response and what they plan to do in future protests? And what are the implications for New Hampshire's democracy if protesters can shut down the orderly process of government? Yeah, no, those are all good questions. And I think we're still waiting for some of the answers. I mean, after the canceled meeting, the following day, uh, the attorney general, John Formiller, announced they were doing a, as he called it, a, a, a report into whether criminal conduct did occur at that protest. And if so, what should be done about it? Um, on the day of the protest, having talked to members of law enforcement that day, um, some of which all of which didn't want to comment publicly about this. There was a concern that had we made any arrests for basically people being loud inside a meeting, this thing could have spiraled further out of control. In other words, if we physically remove a couple of people for being loud, when maybe is that disorderly conduct perhaps, then would that prompt eight or 10 of their pals in there to get loud too, you know? Um, so, I think the I think the attitude of the police was that if those in charge of the meeting can gain control of the meeting, then the meeting can go on. And and I think um, the governor and the council decided we can't get control of these folks. So if we can't, or if we're not going to remove them, then I don't think the meeting can continue. But um, the governor made it clear that that's not going to happen in future meetings, that this is a one-off. And they admittedly, I don't think we're fully prepared for what might happen and are now making sure it doesn't happen going forward. It sounds a little bit to me like, like the January 6th um, <laughs> right. prepar preparations for what happened on January 6th, where... Yeah. Where um, all the war, all the signals were ignored, and then some. It seems like a decision uh, was made, either tacitly or expressly, to slow walk the response out of fear that it would provoke uh, further response. And I guess the question is, when it comes to disrupting the legitimate levers of democracy, um, how doesn't it just embolden? others to yeah, continue right. the same kind of conduct if you don't um, meet uh, this kind of action with appropriate response. I'm not talking about coming in and clubbing people to the ground. I mean, right. That's what happens in other countries. But right. we are talking <laughs> about the legitimate removal of people who are so disruptive that the government cannot conduct its business because it seems to me that those people have shown such a disregard for the process and such a an intent to um at least in this case apparently inflict emotional harm um on and cause uh, if if what david wheeler said was true 
that there were state uh, uh, state people um, uh, working for the state who felt for their felt concerned over their safety. Let assuming that is true, and it wasn't just an excuse for him to say we're we're we've had our breakfast, we're going home. Um, you've got the makings of at least a. A, a kind of assault charge um, causing people to fear for their safety. It's yeah, not a lot of a lot of this was about a lot of the loud threats that were made by people who were there. We know where you live. We'll come to your house. We'll protest. Yeah, that, you. you know, wait a, that's that, serious. That's serious business. Right, we know right. who you are. We're coming. We'll co- and we'll and what and what's interesting about all this and why the and why the. Um, why the response became so um, curious was many of these protesters are the same folks who've been loudly stamping their feet outside the governor's home in Newfields for months at a time. Some of whom, by the way, have been arrested for that behavior, for disorderly conduct outside his house over time and continue to go by his house and protest on a weekly basis to this day. So, um, as I said, it shouldn't have been any shock these folks would be there and this would be their conduct and how they would behave. So, um, uh, as I say, going forward, I don't think we're going to see a repeat for this. I think, you, we're know, gonna, you know, I, but yeah, I want to contrast I want to contrast what happened at the executive council in terms of the police response with the armed presence of law enforcement at a protest at the Bow Power Plant, yeah. which took place recently. Um, for for years, pro, uh, pro, protesters have gathered uh, episodically at the Bow Power Plant to object to uh, the fact that the Bow Power Plant is the last coal-fired, gas-belching, emission-friendly um, uh, power plant around, um, given the climate crisis, which is as clear as the morning sky. Um, there's a lot of deep concern growing deeper and growing uh, about uh, climate change and what's being done about it. So there was an, another recent protest at the Bo power plant. People want it shut down. And I saw pictures of, of a huge police presence in riot gear, um, an armed police presence in riot gear to deal with um, that protest, which, if I'm not mistaken, is basically been a peaceful protest. What do you think about the contrast of the kind of armed riot gear laden police pro- uh, presence at the Bow Power Plant protest for people concerned about climate change as opposed to the police standing by at an executive council when anti-vaccine, anti-mask protesters shut down the government? Yeah, um... There isn't any question about that. I mean, the um, as you know, a, a lot of times the response to a protest has everything to do with where you hold the protest. In this case, the protest at a power plant is on private property owned by utility, and that utility ownership is perfectly within its right to ask the police to come and remove these people from private property. Um, but um the degree of 
police response was um, was really surprising there, and um, and it seemed to be excessive and didn't meet the quote unquote threat that these protesters, who were very peaceful, presented. There, they weren't there to loudly wake up the neighborhood and you know uh, cause a lot of disturbance, but rather just to make a point. And for that, they were removed and, and 18 of them were arrested and charged with um, criminal trespass. Uh, and so, so, let, so let me, let's just be clear. Um, loud protesters come to a, to a, to, and shut down the government. Nobody's arrested. The police don't interfere. Um, uh, climate change uh, protesters come to the Bow Power Plant Police and riot gear show up and 18 people are arrested. Now, I, you know, my I, I admit, Kevin, my mind sometimes works in bizarre ways, but I keep thinking about another contrast in our political landscape of, of police presence between the police presence at the January 6th sack riot and sack and attack on the Capitol and what happened when uh, Black Lives Matter protesters um, mm -hmm. came out and and how the police uh, used all kinds of methods, including tear gas um, to assault protesters. There seems to be a pattern and I, you know, don't please. I don't want anybody to think me paranoid. There seems <laughs> to be a pattern of police uh, presence to shut down what we might call the left leaning protesters and coddling uh, right leaning protesters. Now, you don't have to comment. I'm making an, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, this is a, an opinion or an observation. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, please, I want you to keep your journalistic independence. I'm not asking you to say anything, but I'm just making an observation about it. So let me now, uh, because we've been talking about protests, about vaccines and mandates, um, let's talk a little bit about the state of COVID-19 in the state and sure. uh, recent action by the attorney general. So in recent weeks, uh, there's been a slight uptick in the um, number of New Hampshire residents who are fully vaccinated. Uh, late September was around 150 people a day. Um, now it's around 300 a day. That's a big jump, but but we're we're inching our way towards trying to get 60% of people vaccinated. There is some glimmer there's a glimmer of some good news about covid uh where it looks like there's a very slight decline in the number of people in new hampshire hospitals with covid19 uh from around 150 to around 130 this month uh, and that is a is hopeful i mean it's just you know it's kind of a a, a one month um, downturn. It's a very, it's like more like a plateau and a downturn. Um, but that is a little bit hopeful in terms of what had been a, a huge surge with the uh, Delta uh, variant. But otherwise, we're not really seeing signs of things getting really better. The number of new cases is still rising a bit, 500 compared to 450 two weeks ago. Number of deaths hasn't changed. 
And we are at a place where the total number of people who have died from COVID um, is more than 1,500 people. That, <clears throat> to put it in perspective, uh, as a recent article in the Concord Monitor did, that's more than the population of Salisbury or Danbury or Hill or Wilmot, just to name a few of our local towns in um, Merrimack Valley. And at the same time as we're dealing with this surge in COVID and um, protests against masks and against vaccines, including, by the way, a, a, a apparently a spontaneous illegal march by protesters down Concord's Main Street not too long ago, where more than a thousand anti-vax, anti-mask protesters shut down Concord's Main Street without any intervention by the police and without a permit. And the police said the same thing. If we stop it, it'll create more trouble than enforcing the law will. We have the New Hampshire AG who says uh, in response to questions about whether or not we accept $27 million in federal immunization grants that, yeah, Let's take the money, but we don't have to do anything with it. We don't have to use the money as it's intended to uh, get people vaccinated and to enforce the vaccine vaccine mandate. Um, what's with that? Well, the, the attorney general's opinion about these two contracts was in response to counselors and even some on the fiscal committee, um, most of them Republican, who've raised this question about if we take the money do we, does it then require the state to have to enforce a future Biden vaccine mandate? And his response was, no, you're taking, all you're doing is taking immunization money to carry out the immunization program, which is to say the shots that kids get in school for you know, measles and rubella, and as well as executing the immunizations for COVID-19. It doesn't apply to any future act that the federal government may issue. Um, so, um, and, and the attorney general pointed out, this is essentially boilerplate that's been in every contract that the council has voted on with regard to vaccinations and COVID-19 to this point. They've, and, um, and this governor has made the point throughout the pandemic that state sovereignty exists and that states can act. They're the states are the primary actors when it comes to the response to COVID-19. And so uh, during the state of emergency, it were state actions that placed restrictions on activity because of the pandemic, not the federal government or not former President Trump, it was the state. And so, um, it's the governor's hope anyway that this will assuage enough Republicans on the executive council and the fiscal committee to approve accepting these funds. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a little bit it would be a little bit nuts uh, to turn down um, turn turn down twenty seven million dollars for uh, really important health care uh, over over the political uh, debate 
the 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 you know about about a healthcare crisis but uh, listen straight stranger things have happened in new hampshire with regard to new hampshire turning down federal money when i you know i don't know 10 years ago when i was running and in congress i mean it was a frequent subject of discussion that new hampshire um both uh, lamented that we didn't uh, bring home enough federal money, but also often took the position that we don't want your, your darn federal dollars. You could just keep them. We don't need them here. And we don't want any of your unfunded mandates um, as you know, because we have this very strong tradition of state uh, state sovereignty. Um, and it, sometimes gets kind of mixed up with uh with what is practical but we digress so <laughs> so let me let's ask let me ask you about our governor our great governor um chris sununu has had a very interesting travel schedule recently um he has traveled to washington dc he traveled to california if i recall mm -hmm. to speak at a conference and most recently he traveled somewhere out west to to confab with high-ranking uh republicans he's he's looking more and more like a governor who does intend to run for the united states senate against our current senator a democrat maggie hassan what are you seeing and what do your tea leaves tell you yeah. kevin i want you to i want you to get to the bottom of your teacup <laughs> and uh, <laughs> tell us what you're seeing well certainly well one thing we're seeing is very similar to what we saw in 2015 when then governor maggie hassan was going outside new hampshire a great deal to washington to new york as speculation was persisting that she's gonna run against Kelly Ayotte for the US Senate in the following year, which of course she did. And that's all the more reason why when we see this governor going out to California last month and, um, and next month heading to Las Vegas uh, for a big event um, with the Republican Jewish coalition with a lot of, um, 2024 Republican heavyweights, we assume um, this is just more of the testing the waters phase of this campaign. Um, and um, he insists that all this travel is really about um, responding to many requests to speak outside New Hampshire, because New Hampshire is doing fairly well vis-a-vis -vis COVID. And, um, uh, and some of it is essentially to um, to repay old friends. In the case of Paul LePage, he's going uh, in, in about 10 days to do a fundraiser for the former Maine governor, Paul LePage, who's, who's trying to make a comeback in 2022 and will run against Democratic Governor Janet Mills there. Now there's 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 a mighty pair, Paul LePage, yeah. who taught yeah. Donald Trump everything he knows <laughs> about saying stupid and wacky stuff, yeah. trying to amount a comeback after uh, wait taking a few years off to I don't know have a career as a bartender in the Caribbean or something, and he's he's trying to come back in Maine now, right? And moderate Republicans or so-called moderate Republicans like Chris Sununu would like himself to be perceived as and Susan Collins both um, are endorsing and supporting LePage, who is really 
is so far out on the fringe that he makes Trump look almost moderate. Uh, that's a kind of that's a that's a very interesting uh, a, a, a bit of bit of politicking by our governor to sign up with Paul LePage because doesn't he risk getting tarred with the LePage brush by New Hampshire Democrats? Yeah, I, th I think that's possible to be sure, but um, you've got to keep in mind where Chris Sununu is right now, where his head is politically, right? Which is, if you're thinking of running for the U.S. Senate um, against Maggie Hassan, the first thing you must do is unify this Republican Party behind you and make sure you don't have an expensive and meddlesome Republican primary challenge for that seat. We already have retired General Don Baldick running as he did in 2020. This after all was an um, Afghan war hero who with very little money got almost 45% of the vote in a Republican primary against an establishment selected candidate, Corky Mesner, who was self-funded, right? And who outspent him seven to one in that race. So. Right. So if you're Chris Sununu, the last thing you want to do is uh, allow Boulder to get any traction in, especially in the very conservative Republican Party circles, right? So, um, so that when you run against Don Boulder, you not only win, you win convincingly and you win in a way where you don't have to spend a great deal of your resource because you're going to need all $20 million to take out Maggie Hassan in the general election. Right. So that's that's a lot of what's happening right now. And a lot of this travel has everything to do with that, which is to say these are conservative Republicans who want to hear Chris Sununu and love to see him speak. And, and these are the same folks at the end of the day, he's going to need their financial support if he's able to um, uh, to defeat Maggie Hassan. I mean, there, there's a lot of speculation, for example. People talk, Democrats wax philosophically and hopefully at length about this abortion ban that Chris Sununu signed and how this may make him vulnerable for the first time um, in, in a elect, statewide election to, to independent and women who don't see him as really pro-choice anymore. Uh, the speculation is that Sununu was attracted to this term, this ban on very on late term abortions, because that could access for him a great deal of financial support from that um, right to life community in a U.S. Senate race that's going to get a lot of national attention if he runs. Yep. Right. So, um, yeah. Uh, it, it's the old, you know, Kevin, it's the it's the story uh, that that just keeps on giving money, <laughs> politics and power. How do they work and how do political leaders um, sort of sort of conform their conduct, their votes, their positions yeah. in order to attract the money and power they need to seek office and get in power? It's something uh, it's the age-old game. Well, listen, my friend, we're we're winding down, and I just want to say I, I want to thank you so much for your thoughts and your observations uh, as we end this uh, Capital Close-Up segment with Kevin Landrigan. Just want to shout out to the Red Sox, two-to-one series lead over the Tampa Deverways after Christian Vasquez's two-run homer in the thirteenth inning lifted them. Go socks, go socks, go socks. Folks, we'll see you next week. <laughs>